sing that song and not think of Revelation where he tells us that we'll be there with myriads and myriads, all the angels, holy angels, all of the redeemed of all time gathered around the throne singing praises to him who by his blood redeemed the people from every tribe, nation, and tongue for his eternal honor and our eternal joy. Let's pray to him. Our great and our glorious God, how delightful it is to sing praises to you. And as much as we marvel at your mysteries in Scripture, the greatest mystery is that you, the eternal Son of God, would by the eternal plan of the Father and in love to the Father come, wrap yourself in human flesh and give yourself as a sacrifice on our behalf to rise as the glorified Savior, our God, our Lord, and to give us of your Spirit and to bring us into that eternal communion that you have shared as our God, Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. And now we have the great privilege of hearing you speak to us through your word. May we hear your voice. May you, by your Spirit, open our ears and our eyes to hear and to understand and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And will you open up to our hearts and to our minds the great privilege of prayer which we'll consider this morning. We thank you that you do hear us when we pray. And it is in your name we do. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. For those who are visiting, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 23. We have for a couple of weeks jumped back to Matthew chapter 7 to consider the matter of prayer. To consider the matter of prayer. We began last week looking at this great passage and noting that it is an encouragement from the Lord Jesus to come to Him in prayer and to take everything to the Lord in prayer. Now prayer is essential to the Christian's spiritual life. Indeed, the very beginning of our salvation is the matter of prayer. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 10. If you confess... With your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And our salvation began when we called on the name of the Lord out of faith, seeking from Him forgiveness of our sin, reconciliation with God, from whom we are by nature alienated. And at the heart of salvation then is being reconciled to God, brought from a relationship of enmity to one of friendship, being moved from a place of death to a place of light, from a place of darkness to a place of light, from being objects of wrath to being objects of mercy and His grace in the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ and knowing the forgiveness of sin, being brought into union with Him, being in fellowship with the Father and the Son, as John says in 1 John. And prayer is necessary expression of that relationship. Prayer is a great privilege of coming to the One who has called us into intimate union and fellowship with Himself. It is a great privilege of salvation. Now last week we begin our look at the Lord's teaching here in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 7 through 12. And we noted several things. First of all, that prayer is to be persistent. We are to lay hold of God and not let go. We are to pursue Him and we are to pursue the thing that we want from God with tenacity. 
with fervor and with persistence. We are to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking and not give up. Second, we noted that there are requirements to this kind of prayer. It must be believing. It is laying hold of God as He is, not as we want Him to be, as He is and as He is revealed in Scripture and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray believing. We pray according to His will and we pray to His glory. Which follows the very pattern that He gave us already in the model prayer in chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. We noted thirdly that the things we are to pray for are salvation. Indeed, some would have heard the Sermon on the Mount, realized they are outside of God's kingdom as it is being laid out before them by Christ, and desire to enter into that kingdom and to know the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And it is an invitation at one level then to ask and seek and knock and receive from God His grace, the grace of salvation. It is also an invitation to seek from God sanctification. Indeed, even those who know Him would hear the Sermon on the Mount and realize the great deficiency that we have in fulfilling all of those things as we ought and would seek God's assistance in this. And we would seek God to grow us in righteousness, in love for Him, in poverty of spirit, and so on. It is also an invitation to seek from God our supply. In other words, everything that we need to do the will of God is not everything that we want, but everything that we need to do the will of God on this earth. In that way, modeling Paul's own statement in Philippians chapter 4, in which he promises to this Philippian church, my God will supply all of your needs, everything that you need to serve me and honor me in this world. Sometimes that's an abundance, sometimes it is a lack. It is always what we need. Now God always hears and answers prayer. Sometimes the answer is yes, that's an easy one to accept. Sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is wait. And it is these last two that are the most difficult for us. But in order to have joy and perseverance and growth and to make sure even that we are praying for the right things, it is necessary then that we be grounded in the character of God. And Jesus will turn us to that matter this morning. One has said, a statement that you've heard many times, I'll repeat it for us this morning, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. End quote. That was said by A.W. Tozer. In other words, then our thoughts of God are the most important defining reality about us. What we think about God in the depths and the secret thoughts of our hearts. And it forms not only the foundation of our lives, but it also forms the foundation of our prayers and how we approach this great and glorious King And so, as I said, it is to the character of God that Jesus turns us specifically this morning. So, if you're not there already, turn over to Matthew chapter 7 and read with me, beginning in verse 7, down to verse 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. As we mentioned last week, Jesus is here giving us two encouragements to prayer, and he's giving us one command to obey. The first encouragement we noted last week was that God promises to answer the prayers of those who are pursuing him, those who are seeking him, his kingdom, and his righteousness. The second encouragement, which we'll start with this morning, is that God's character is supremely good and wise and trustworthy. And in order to teach us that, Jesus first then corrects our wrong thinking about both ourselves and about God. And he does so first in verses 9 through 10 by appealing to familial love, the love among family. He says in verses 9, or verse 9, what man is there among you? In other words, he's addressing what is a common reality, something commonly known to men. Here it is a father giving to his child the child's request, what he asks of his father. All understand the natural love that exists between a father and his children, and a mother as well, but here a father. The normal desire of any parent worthy of the title is to provide what is good for their children, and especially when it comes to the basic needs of life, like food. Bread and fish were common items, and remember that Jesus is speaking in the region of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, may be in view even as he's giving this sermon. These would have been things that were very common to them. Both were staples in the ancient world. If you remember, the two feeding miracles were to provide what? Bread and fish. And so it is here, his son asking for these items of food. But notice the striking element that Jesus gives. He says if he asks for bread and fish, the father will not respond by deceiving him. He will not give him a stone or a snake instead. A stone was a light-colored and sometimes these flat stones in the wilderness that appeared to be bread. If you'll remember when Jesus was in the wilderness in Matthew 4, Satan tempted him and said, that you not, why don't you turn these stones into bread if you're hungry? A snake here is not necessarily a poisonous one, that's often what we think of, but it is a snake nonetheless. It has been suggested by some that it could be an eel, which was unclean under the Mosaic law, but it really is inconsequential which one he's referring to. It is a snake, by the way. But both of them would be deceiving the child. Both of them would be cruel. In Luke eleven twelve, he adds, if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? And he uses this example because it's said that of some of the scorpions uh, in that region, when they curl up into a ball, that they look precisely like an egg. Now the point is obvious. To do any of these would be universally recognized as an act of cruelty and deception. And any believing or unbelieving parent recoil at the thought of treating their child with such deception and such hostility, really. Only the most wicked would do such a mean and a cruel-spirited thing. Again, he's playing off the obvious. There is a basic and deep love designed by God that a parent has for a child. It is something that only a parent could know. And to treat a child this way would be ridiculous to the eyes, in the eyes of any loving 
parent. And so with that common agreement, the Lord then moves on to the next point to make a striking contrast. He says, verse 11, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Now stop right there. Now giving food to a hungry child is a good thing, right? It displays compassion. It displays the trustworthiness of that child, or the parent that the child could go to them and ask for it. It displays love and concern for that child's well-being. But listen to what Jesus says. And this is the first contrasting element here. He says, you do that and you are evil. You're evil. You're wicked. Morally corrupt is the idea of the term here. Now what's interesting is that Jesus could have left this out of the statement and it would read just fine. It's not necessary. He could have easily said, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? But he doesn't do that. He throws this very essential statement there, if you being evil, you who are wicked. And he does that again because he's making a stark contrast. And so before moving on, it's necessary to pull the car over here for just a minute and consider what he's saying. Now generally, fallen man tends to think that we are basically good, but sometimes we do bad things. For those of you who might know this, that's the ancient heresy of Pelagius, or known as Pelagianism. That man is basically good, we're born innocent, and we could go either way. But that is exactly the opposite of God's testimony, who says that we are basically bad because of the fall, and by his common restraining grace, we are sometimes capable of doing good things because... He restrains the evil that is natural to our hearts. Now, apart from His giving new life in Christ by the Spirit, we are described then by God as dead. That's total depravity. And total depravity does not mean that each person is as bad as they could be. It doesn't mean everybody sins as much as they could. It simply means that in every part of our being, every part of our humanness, we are corrupted and polluted by sin, rendering us guilty and unable to come to Christ or do righteousness apart from His sovereign grace. Listen to two testimonies of this before we move on. One, an old Puritan, has said this, Stephen Charnock, We call one another good without considering how evil, and wise without considering how foolish, mighty without considering how weak, and knowing without considering how ignorant. No man but hath more of wickedness than goodness, of ignorance than knowledge, of weakness than strength. And the problem is that we don't recognize that usually because we're comparing ourselves to other sinners. But when we compare ourselves to God, only then do we have a right view of our wickedness and our sin. Let me read to you one other statement that brings this out very powerfully. And I think this is one of the most powerful statements and sections in all of Calvin's writings. It's found in his institute, and it begins with this. We are not convinced, speaking of our sinfulness, if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Because nothing appears within or around us that has not been contaminated by great immorality. What is a little less vile pleases us as a thing most pure, so long as we confine our minds within the limits of human corruption. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and ponder His nature and how completely perfect are His righteousness, wisdom, and power, then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. 
what was wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. End quote. And a Christian gets this. A Christian can rightly say that no good thing dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. And so as an aside, Jesus is making a contrast here by bringing out to us that we who do good are yet by our very nature wicked in the eyes of God and yet we're managed to do some good things. And so even though we are wicked and there is a great depth of our sin that is displayed in this statement, that's not his main point. He simply wants to compare it to the glorious goodness of God. Listen once again to a summary of Calvin on this passage. This is in his commentaries. He says this, Whence comes this goodness? That because God drops into their hearts a portion of His goodness. But if the little drops produce such an amount of beneficence, what ought we to expect from the inexhaustible ocean? Would God, who thus opens the hearts of men, shut His own? In other words, if men who are evil are capable of this kind of goodness, how much greater is the goodness of God? And so Jesus addresses that in the next part of the statement. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? If your children can trust you to do good, though you are evil, how much more can you trust your Father to do what is good for you when you come to Him in prayer? As a matter of fact, even a uh, a believer is to demonstrate this kind of generosity, a general kind of generosity. He says in 542 of the sermon, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. If we are required of even that basic level of goodness, how much more is the goodness of God towards his own? And it is amazing that Jesus has to remind us of the relative goodness of man compared to God. It shows how skewed our thinking is by sin and unbelief. But the Lord Jesus is not talking here about general goodness. He's talking specifically about the goodness of God towards His own children. He's speaking of God's basic attitude or disposition toward His own. Now, as was mentioned in the quote by Tozer, we tend to approach God, or we do approach God, as we think about God. And so the God of Scripture and the God of Christ, revealed, who is revealed to us in Christ, is of an infinitely more glorious nature than the God of fallen man. One thing that stands out in contrast to the God of the Old Testament, that was the ancient Near East religions, which was the context in which the Jews were called out by God, in which they lived their lives. They were basically had a gloomy vision of God, their gods, their multiple gods. They were they, they, uh, generally somber kind of religions. They were generally gloomy and dark, which stood into contrast to the religion of Israel, which was, though it had sacrifices for sin, it was celebratory. They had feasts, they had praise, They had songs of worship to the glory of their God. The glory of the God of Israel stood in stark contrast to the wickedness and the manipulation required by the gods of false religions. We won't read it for the sake of time, but one of the most striking examples of this that you remember well is Elijah on Mount Carmel with all apostate at that point, Israel gathered around who had fallen under the deception of the worship of the false god Baal. 
And there he is on this mountain, and the priests of Baal are there, and they are calling upon their God, and in order to manipulate their God, they cut themselves and they harmed themselves in a variety of different ways. And of course, he was silent because he did not answer, because he does not exist. And yet, all Elijah had to do was call upon the God who is, the God of Israel, the God who would demonstrate His glory for the good of His people. And fire came down from heaven, as you know, and consumed the sacrifices, even though they were soaking wet. He manifested His glory to His people. The God who is, is of a much different nature than the God of the mind of fallen men. And yet, you know that even Christians can have these wrong perceptions about God. I imagine that some of you at times have struggled with having a wrong perception about God. Sometimes we pray with doubt as though God is stingy, as though He really wants to withhold His blessings from us, but in fact that is not true. We pray sometimes or we think about God as if He is harsh, and we may be afraid to ask. Have you ever said, I don't want to ask that because I'm afraid God will give me the opposite? Have you said that? That's a wrong view of God. That is a wrong view of God. That is to doubt His goodness and that is to doubt His wisdom. And yet I know that we've thought that at times. Sometimes we think about God as if He's unconcerned or aloof, as if He has distanced Himself from us and has no concern for us. And if we think these ways about God, then we will not be encouraged to go to Him and we will not have confidence to go to Him in prayer. And so we need to be struck with the goodness of God. Now, as mentioned before, sometimes we think of God's goodness as being very similar to ours, only better. Maybe a lot better, maybe a little better, but that is not true. Let me just briefly give you at least three reasons why God's goodness is superior to our own. And I'm going to mention these quickly. The first is this. God's goodness is superior to our own because His goodness is from His own nature. It's who He is. He is not good as though He is a God and goodness is applied to Him. He is goodness itself. Man's goodness is a reflected goodness. Even the best of man's goodness is but a meager reflection of the infinite goodness of God in whose image we are made. We bear His image and we reflect that goodness in some measure, but it falls short of who God is. As the warmth of the sun is felt on a summer day, but it's a small portion of the sun's full and blazing heat. Or if the moon on its own is cold and lifeless and gray, but is beautiful when it's full in the dark night sky and it reflects the rays and the light of the sun to us. And so it is with God's goodness. His is an infinite goodness. His is a perfect goodness. And His is a goodness from His own nature. And there's no true concept of goodness apart from Him. For there is no one good but God alone. And His goodness is without flaw. The best of our goodness is flawed with sin. Is flawed at times with self-interest. And yet, it is not so with God. Our goodness can be flawed with ignorance. But His goodness is attached to His infinite holiness and His wisdom. And it is perfect in its execution. Secondly, God's goodness is superior to ours because He is good to those who are profoundly unworthy of it. He is good to those who deserve only wrath. In other words, when God is good and because it comes from His own nature, He is good freely and He is good liberally to all. To all. It's free and merited goodness. Jesus addressed this already in the Sermon on the Mount when He says that He causes His reign to fall and His Son to shine on both the good and the evil, on both the righteous 
and the unrighteous. Now this is a stark contrast to man. We tend to be good to those who we think deserve it or are worthy of being good. And in fact, it's a sad testimony that the Christians at times behave no better than unbelievers in this area. Being good to those we think only, only to those who deserve it. But this is the opposite of God's goodness. God's goodness is displayed to us who are His own Why we were, according to Paul in Romans 5, helpless, sinners, unworthy, enemies, and under His condemnation. Romans 5, 6, we won't turn there. Thirdly, God's goodness is superior because it's immutable. That is to say, it's unchanging. Our goodness is not always dependable, nor is it felt or expressed consistently to the same degree. But it's not that way with God. Sometimes we feel good towards someone and we act out of it. Sometimes we don't. We feel selfish. Sometimes we feel intensely to do good to someone. Sometimes we want to do no good to that person, maybe even to harm them. But that's not how it is with God. God is always good. He is consistently good. And He is consistently good with the same intensity towards His own. Micah 7 18 says this Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. I would mention to you that at the very revelation of the glory of God to Moses, he revealed his what? What did he reveal? Do you remember? His goodness. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And it was a goodness that included his forgiveness his mercy, and his love for his people and his patience. And God's goodness permeated all of those things. I'd remind you of what the Lord said in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And there is no greater demonstration of God's goodness toward his own, towards you and me, in that Christ, the eternal Son in flesh, would lay down his life and suffer the curse of the law from the Father in our place. Goodness and love are twin brothers. It's possible to do a good deed and not love somebody, but it's impossible to love somebody and not do good to them. God has demonstrated His love toward us, His goodness toward us who know Him at the cross. And it is infinite. It is immeasurable. And it is unfailing. If that is the case, is God not good to us and can He not be trusted when we come to Him in prayer? This is what He's saying. This is the prayer, this is the goodness of the entire Godhead working on our behalf. The goodness and love of the Father who planned our salvation in eternity and sent His Son. The goodness and love of the Son who came clothed in flesh and went to the cross in our place. It is the goodness and love of the Spirit who sustained the Son in the flesh, raised Him from the dead, and applies His work to us, brings us into union to the Son so that we might have fellowship and forgiveness of sin. I ask you, if this is the character of God, will He not hear our prayers and answer us out of His goodness and out of His love? He says this, Paul does in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If you have the thought that God is stingy, that God's wisdom is doubtful, or that His care for you is suspect, you must remember that He gave us His Son, and we should repent of those thoughts. If we could at once grasp the infinite glory and grandeur and wonder of God's love and majestic character for His majestic character towards His own and how He gives us every benefit out of His goodness for us, we would never doubt Him again. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven, who is infinite, immutable, and perfectly good, who did not spare His own Son that He might make you sons, how much more will He not give us what is good to those who ask Him? So in the midst of trials and in the midst of doubt, the cross will not allow us to cast suspicion upon God. Let me know one other aspect of this. That we commit our prayers to his superior wisdom. Consider the illustration that he gives here again. He will not give him a stone and he will not give him a snake, will he, in place of what he's asked for? Now sometimes Christians, you and I may feel as if God gives us a stone or that he gives us a snake or that he gives us a scorpion. We ask and we plead with God in prayer and it seems that we do not receive. We seek things from God and it seems that he does not let us find them. We knock and we knock at heaven's door and it seems that it remains shut in our face. You pray for something that never happens. You pray for something good and something bad happens instead. You pray for relief and it never comes. And you say, did God not give me a stone? Did God not give me a snake? And did He not give me a scorpion? As we mentioned, the Greeks had gods like that. Let me give you one account to illustrate a contrast here. One account tells of Aurora, who was a Greek goddess who loved a mortal by the name of Tithonus. Now Zeus, wanting to give a gift to Aurora, offered her one wish on behalf of Tithemus. So Tithemus was a mortal that this goddess in Greek mythology loved. And so she, because of her love for him, wished that he would never die. However, she forgot to ask that he remain forever young. Therefore, Tithemus was cursed to be in a perpetual state of growing older and older, but never experiencing the strength of youth or the relief of death. An old hymn describes his last days like this. But when loathsome, loathsome old age pressed full upon him, and he could not move nor lift his limbs, this seemed to her in her heart the best counsel. She laid him in a room and put, to, and put him to the shining doors. There he babbles endlessly, and no more has strength at all, such as once he had in his supple limbs. God is not cruel like that. God is not untrustworthy like that. God does not have a sinister delight in tricking us and to causing us to suffer from our own ignorance. And that's why it's crucial that as we pray and as we experience about how God works and His answers to those prayers in life, which are often very different than what we expect, that we are grounded in the character of God. Because the wisdom of God does at times ordain things contrary to what we would expect or even what makes sense. But we must be sure that He is good and that our prayers are still heard and though they are encompassed in His ultimate sovereign plan for our life. And that means then that as we pray and as we seek these things, as we're grounded in His character, that we're praying in submission to His will and remembering that our understanding is imperfect and our understanding is limited. And therefore we pray with a real degree of ignorance. And God has made provision for that. You remember what he said in Romans 8? We do not know how to pray as we should, but who intercedes for us? The Spirit of God with groans too deep for words. We don't even know what we should pray for very often. And so the Spirit has to intercede for us. And yet even in our ignorance, we can trust in God's character that He's working all things together for our good. And we can be thankful that God does not simply just say yes to every request. 
because we often pray for things we shouldn't be praying for. We pray for things that are not the best, but we can't see that, though God does from His perspective of our infinite, glorious, and eternal. We, Father, if we gave our children everything that they asked, everything that they wanted to eat, everything that they asked to own, it would not be for their best interest. They would not only be unhealthy, but they would not be trained up in the ways of the Lord as they need to be. So when we as our God's children pursue Him in prayer, we are to trust in His wisdom and His goodness with a rest for His submission. Listen to what one old commentator has said. If we ask for something which we think to be good, but which he knows to be evil, he will withhold it, even as any judicious human parent must often do. It is really a part of the privilege of prayer that God will withhold if he sees best. Were this not the case, the wisest and best persons might often be slowest to ask, for they know how often their judgment as to what was best has proved erroneous." But as it is, we may ask without apprehension for whatever we think is best and our perfectly wise and perfectly kind Father will give that or something which He sees to be even better. And as we mentioned last week, sometimes in our waiting, God has spiritual good that He's doing. He's teaching us humility that we would not exalt in self but recognize our dependence. We looked at Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He's teaching us contentment, that we are not to rely on our circumstances or simply receiving what we ask for, but he trains us to have our contentment in Christ. And he teaches us perseverance and not give up in adversity. So God gives us every encouragement to pray. We can go to God and know that he is good, that he is wise, that he delights in pleasing his children and he always does what is best for you and for me. And let's notice one last point here. His exhortation to obey. And that's in verse 12. So we can have confidence that God hears and answers those who pursue Him. We can have confidence in God's character. That He is good and that He is wise. And that He loves His own with a perfect love. And He gives us now an exhortation to obey. He says in verse 12. In everything therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Essentially, the command is this. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in love. And he's providing here a profound conclusion to his teaching. Not only for this section, but for everything that he said up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, the idea is this. If we so expect God to treat us with kindness, to treat us with goodness, to treat us with wisdom, to treat us with deference, to treat us according to what is best for us, then we are also to reflect toward others the same characters and qualities of God that we want to display the character of God then to others. And namely, this command could be captured in the one word, to love, to love. We are to treat people in the same way that we want them to treat us. This is known as the golden rule. Now, this is not unique to Christianity. Jesus did not come up with this. He's not the first one to say this. In fact, it's very common in ancient writers. Let me just give you a few examples. Confucius, Confucius I think I said his name wrong. You know who I'm talking about. He said this a long time ago. What did I say, Confucius? Confucius, Confucius, thank you. We're going to get there. He said this, listen to what he said. Do, not, do unto others 
Do unto others that which you would not they should do unto you. I noted that with a statement like that, his name could have been called confusion. Which would have helped me say his name a lot better, but be that as it may. Another says this, quote, A Greek biographer of Aristotle relates that being asked how we should behave toward our friends, he answered, as we should wish them to behave toward us. Uh, One more, Rabbi Hillel, likely alive actually during the time of Christ, said this, or an account goes of his life like this, uh, it, once it was told about a man that if he could, that came up to uh, Rabbi Hillel and said to him that if Rabbi Hillel could explain the whole law to him while standing on one foot, he would become a proselyte. In other words, he would come over to be a servant of God, his God. To this, Rabbi Hillel responded, what is hateful to you, do not do, not do to another. This is the whole law and the rest is an explanation of it. Now it has been said that the Lord's command differs primarily in this area. And this is often the way that it's taken. That the Lord's command is positive, while what comes from pagan philosophers and such are largely negative. However, I don't think that's the real difference. First of all, there's plenty of ancient statements that put it in a positive light, very similar to what the Lord said. And on top of that, even the negative statements have a positive implication. That can't be the heart of the difference. It must be somewhere else. And I would suggest to you that there are at least three, and we're going to close with these. It'll bring us to a conclusion. Now, I borrowed these categories from another named William Hendrickson, but I think he was right on. The first difference is this. The first difference is this. That unbelieving man views this as something they can do on their own strength and ultimately then to their own credit. In other words, for the golden rule for many, as it said... It's something that can be done in their own strength and therefore requires no grace. It can be done to their own standard. The Christian, on the other hand, hears this and understands that there is no good thing in me. That this command to love like this can only be rightly obeyed by God's strength, by the power of His Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing of spiritual value. Nothing of eternal and lasting value. Nothing that brings glory to the Father. The mark of being in the kingdom is to be poor in spirit. And the believer understands the weight of this, the weight of their failure, the weakness of their own heart, and the need to have our every deed covered by the righteousness of Christ and to do this by the work of the Spirit in us. So the first difference is that unbelieving man views this as something they can do in their own strength. Secondly, an unbelieving or moral religious person hears this and has the tendency to separate the love for man from the commandment of love for God. In other words, unbelieving man sees man as the final end of this commandment. If you were to ask an unbeliever, maybe if I were to ask some of you, and certainly you've had this conversation, why should God let you into heaven? That's a, that's a good, sometimes, evangelistic uh, beginning. Why should God let you into heaven if you think you're going there? And sometimes the answer is, is because I haven't hurt anyone. I try to do good to other people. I haven't murdered. I haven't steal, stolen. I try to tell the truth and so on and so forth. Basically, I try to be obedient to the second half of the Ten Commandments and how I treat my fellow man. What I find it interesting to note, however, is that nobody ever says that I should let you or God should let them into heaven because I have loved God passionately, because I have sought to serve God with my everything. 
And the reason is, is because for fallen man, man is at the center of the universe and the center of God's purposes. But that's not how it is with God. He says precisely the opposite. The greatest command is what? I hope you know this, we've covered this. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second one is like it. What is the second one? To love your neighbor as yourself. There is an order on purpose. It is love to God that is supreme. It is love to God that He calls us to mostly. And that is helpful to mention as a footnote here when you're witnessing that God's command is to love Him with a whole heart, with a whole soul and mind. How have you done it that one? You have failed. You need the covering of His grace. In fact, you can't even begin to love your neighbor as yourself until you have tasted of the love of God and until you've been crushed and humbled by His grace in light of your sin, until you live in obedience to His commands, until you love, get this, by His standards and not your own. And His standards are the cross. How are you to love your neighbor? As Christ loved us at the cross. How are you to love your enemy? As Christ loved His enemies at the cross. And we can only do that by the Spirit. Note thirdly and lastly, that the unbelieving miss the point of what Jesus is saying here, and they miss the purpose of the command because they make it utilitarian. In other words, they make it ultimately self-serving, like the idea of karma. If you do good, then good will come back to you. If you do good to me, or if I do good to you, then you'll do good to me. And God has designed a basic sowing and reaping reality in relationships. It's part of our human nature. But that is the opposite of Christian love. True obedience to God's command here is not to receive something back, but it is to live out of gratitude and love for God, for His mercy to us in Christ. It is to be for His glory and for His pleasure. Look at what he says. How are we to love? What is the fulfillment of this commandment to treat others with deference and kindness and beneficence? It is this, that it is the law and the prophets. It's a summation of the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets did not call His people for self-gratifying and self-serving and self-empowered religion or moralism. But He called them to a, God's people to a supreme love of God for His kindness and His grace, for His glory, and for His majesty. And that is what God to motivate us. And Jesus said, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And so the cross is the motivation and the standard for Christian love and obedience. And it's the only way our good deeds can go from being filthy rags to being covered in His righteousness and something offered to Him as a pure sacrifice and that is only pleasing to Him. Now this is the context then of our prayer. And really at the whole heart of how we realize and come to experience everything that Jesus is laying before us here. We're only going to know this reality of prayer, this reality of his answering to our prayer, this reality of knowing His nearness and His grace and the abundance of His goodness in prayer when we live a life in the humility of grace. Grace is very humbling. When we live in submission to Christ and obedience to His command, when our will is bended to His will, when our delights are His delights, our goals are His goals. And this only happens when we love it if we're regularly in His Word. If your prayer life is struggling, one of the first questions that we would ask to you is how are you doing in pursuing God and seeking His kingdom? What is your time like in Scripture? 
Are you meditating on his word? Are you studying? Are you reading? Are you memorizing? Are you seeking to bring every area of your life in obedience to the commands of Christ by the power of the Spirit? That is how we're conformed to his will, the image of Christ. That's how his goals and his delights become our own. And that's how we enter into the power of the prayer that Jesus is laying before us. You cannot expect to have a dynamic prayer life. You cannot expect to realize and experience the fullness of what Christ is laying out before us here if your life is not brought in its totality into submission to Him. If you are unwilling to demonstrate love to so-and-so, whoever pops into your mind, if you are unwilling to demonstrate kindness to a person, maybe someone at work, maybe even a brother or sister in Christ, you cannot expect that God will delight in hearing and giving you your request or even that your request will be right. You cannot expect God to hear and grant what you want and be unwilling to obey Him. And if you're not pursuing obedience in some area of life, this promise of Christ outside of the promise to forgive us when we confess and repent, that's always true, then we will not know the power of prayer. The words of Jesus in John 15, and we're going to end with this, bear weight on his teaching here on prayer. If you abide in my love, you, you will keep my commandments, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That is the heart, that is the child that God loves to bless who he delights in hearing their prayers and giving them their request. And so as we come to the table to this morning, there's no greater opportunity as the gathered church to do business with the Lord in this way. To get right with the Lord in the heart and there's any of these areas where you know that there is sin and disobedience. To come clean before the Lord, to confess your sin to Him, to commit yourself to Him in obedience. And if that is the, the pattern that you are walking in in your life, then what a tremendous opportunity that God has designed to be restored and renewed and refreshed in our sweet fellowship with Him, with the Son and with the Father by the Spirit, and to know His kingdom and His lights. So I pray that you will take this time to pray to your Father, you who know Him, who is good. If you don't know Him, then the only request that God promises to hear is that first one, the request of forgiveness to sin, the request to be reconciled to God through Christ. And if that is true, then I would suggest that that be your prayer now as we bow our heads and God and the men pass out the elements. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great and tremendous, glorious promise that you who are infinitely good and wise who have infinitely displayed your goodness and the, the measure of your love in sending your Son to the cross and our Lord and you as the Son going to the cross and then you sending your Spirit to bring us into fellowship with you by granting us faith and repentance, trust in you, the risen one, by in bringing us into this intimate fellowship with the Father and the Son we do pray now, Spirit of God, that you would work in each of our hearts to unfold to us in a new way, in a fresh way, the glory of the gospel. Would you reveal to us any sin that is lingering in our hearts that we might confess it and turn from it and forsake it for your glory? And would you, in the hearts of any who are here who don't know you, who have not yet tasted of the grace that you have offered in Christ, 
that today would be the day that they enter into life. We pray these things in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.